20-year-old Friedrich Surturner wasn't a doctor when he started his pharmaceutical experiments. Even by 1803 standards, he wasn't anywhere close to having a license to practice medicine. Hell, he hadn't even passed the test to be a pharmacist's assistant yet. But in the back of his boss's pharmacy shop, he passed around doses of a new crystalline powder he had isolated from opium. The first time anyone, anywhere, had got an alkaloid extract from a plant. Friedrich asked three friends, 17-year-olds, to be his test pilots. Of course, the teenagers took Friedrich's drug. They knew it had come from opium. They knew Friedrich had been unsuccessful so far getting the dosage right. What they may not have known was that his new drug had killed all the stray dogs he gave it to. But Friedrich was sure this time would be different. Mice and dogs provided what Friedrich called inexact results. Whereas people could be counted on to tell you what they were feeling as the powerful white powder kicked in. One by one, they swallowed the drug, which Friedrich named Morpheus because the crystal powder made him sleepy and Morpheus was the king of dreams. Later, as the scientific community tore Friedrich and his wonder drug apart, it would be renamed to morphine. With the first dose, Friedrich's friends told him they felt happy and lightheaded. Fifteen minutes later, he dosed them again. This time, the extra morphine made them drowsy and fatigued, and he kept giving them more. Another 15 milligram dose, his friends got confused, dazed. It was when they started falling asleep uncontrollably that Friedrich thought of the dogs. The dogs who had fallen asleep before they died. Now might be a good time to mention that a adult dose of morphine is about 10 milligrams. Friedrich and his friends had taken almost 100 milligrams. When Friedrich noticed his homemade powder was making them dangerously sleepy, he passed around vials of vinegar and had them do shots. His friends vomited, woke up with headaches, and refused to continue the experiments. This moment in history, a pharmacist apprentice nearly killing a group of teenage friends would advance medicine and chemistry in three giant steps. Friedrich would be the first chemist to ever isolate and identify the active ingredient in a plant. He'd be the first to create an alkaloid extract, meaning little white crystals we associate with morphine, nicotine, strychnine, etc. And he would be the first to invent a painkiller that could be accurately dosed. Of course, given the circumstances of his experiment and Friedrich's lack of education, his invention was ignored and his research paper was rejected. But Friedrich was a trailblazer and he would try again and again and again for validation and credit until the day he died. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment. All the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then, we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no dawn the internet and get to the facts. Examples of trailblazers come in two different flavors. A woman like Amelia Earhart pushes a new technology to the edge. 
or Steve Jobs or Howard Hughes runs a company that invents the technology for her to push. Today we're focusing on the inventor trailblazer, the men and women who have vision, who saw further than the rest of us and profited off of it. Because we want to ask one simple question with lots of moving parts. Is it better to invent something outside the mold and risk being ignored or to buy a tried and true mold and get cranking? Experimenter or craftsman? Basement laboratory or factory assembly line? To answer this, we're busting three innovation myths today. Myths like, myth one, tech adoption is guaranteed. If you make a better handle for a hammer, you'll see it on the store shelves within your lifetime. If you invent a new painkiller, science will embrace you, right? Myth two, if inventing a new technology doesn't guarantee success, at least we'd know to invest in a brilliant product if we saw it. We would have never turned down Steve Jobs when they first started looking for investors. Myth three, poor Friedrich, getting ignored. Fortunately for us, America is the fertile crescent of innovation. If we invent something useful, we'll be rewarded, right? We'll get to our myths about technology's trailblazers. But first, I want to explain to Joe why Friedrich's discovery was much, much bigger than just painkillers and poppy plants. So I've got to start with a question about this. I have um, read history. I know they had medicine and like alchemists pretty much as far back as we've been humans. Like you, you can read about like surgeries in ancient Greece. So what is Friedrich doing that we don't have already? Like, why is this important? That's a great question, Joe. So a lot of things was given in, in liquid form, like a juice, or is given in a, a way to smoke. Okay. Which is kind of funny to think of, right? But you take a plant, and the most common one was a juice. So then you turn it into a liquid, smash it down, and mix it with water. We'll put some daisies and some alcohol and leach out whatever's good in there, or or we'll give you literal opium. So it's one of the two. And and then the freshness of the crops, too. But the problem with this was the dosage. So you couldn't give the exact dosage to people. And so when we're talking about, and everyone knew that there was pain relief from the poppy seed, but too much of it was lethal. Okay. So you got, guess what, super, super conservative with who to give it to because it's bad for business to be killing people. So I think one of the biggest thing from just doing the research with you is what about just extracting things from plant? This was the first guy to do that effectively. Okay. So when we say extract, in the in the opening narrative, we talk about crystalline, like like getting a crystalline powder out of a plant which is, um, I think I'm getting this right, before now, that, that crystal is an alkali, which is the opposite of an acid. And up until this moment, everyone thought the only thing you could get out of a plant was an acid. So this guy is just a teenager accidentally inventing all this stuff. Well, he saw some things other people didn't, so he was a trailblazer in that. So I don't know if he read something somewhere or where he got it. That's not part of the story. Okay. It's hard to imagine that he would just, at his young age of 17. (laughs) Say I stumbled into your Friedrich 
and I broke my leg and I'm walking into like your pharmacy shop and I'm like, Hey, you know, my, my broken leg hurts a little bit. Could you do something for this? Friedrich's not even the one that's going to be giving me uh unpredictable opium poppy. Like he's, he's not going to be packaging up my poppies and, and giving me opium. Right. He has no kind of license. He would be the kid that would be either running the cash register or sweeping the floor. <laughs> he's the stock boy. <laughs> he would not be allowed to touch the pills, mix the pills, uh, prescribe anything. What is the stock boy doing inventing science in the back room? That's wild. Well, the first thing I thought was what? That he had a family that were doctors and pharmacists, and this was maybe they did it and gave the kid credit for it, right? Right. No. And I'll tell you a little bit about his story. Um, so Friedrich was born in Prussia, in 1783 his parents were Austrian and they were in service to the royal family um, his dad was an engineer and building inspector and then he died in 1798 so and then the Sir Tanner's grandfather died that same year so at the age of 15 with both of the male um, both of his male parents I guess you would say the grandfather took the place of the dad with him gone, there was no means of financial support. Okay. And so with, with no education, no means, he became a pharmacist apprentice. Now, when he was at the pharmacy, he was a very inquisitive kid. He was, a, he was a, a learner, even though he wasn't very educated. And he would stay after work all night and do run experiments on opium. He'd use the equipment and everything. So he just, he turned it into his kind of, his entertainment. That's like the kid that works part-time at the bike shop. And like, obviously he has the best bike on the block. I was thinking the Thomas Edison thing, you know. Yeah. Just working around the clock, just obsessed with it. Yeah, your hobby is your job. And you clean up to pretend you haven't been there all night. <laughs> now it's important to remember, okay, this is a young guy. He's obviously a smart guy. This was a 52-step process to extract this from the plant. <laughs> that is so much. It's so complicated. And Friedrich flirted with death many times doing these experiments. Right. I've. There's so many. Yeah. What danger would you be in inventing morphine when, like, absorbing anything through the skin is possible and, like, you breathe that in or take it and it could it could ruin your day? And killing every animal in you know in the neighborhood. Have you you've heard the story of the invention of um, vulcanized rubber? No. As the story goes, a scientist was like holding a piece of regular rubber, and like he accidentally dropped that piece of rubber into a hot pan or plate, and he vulcanized it like he turned it hard, and that was the invention of that rubber. That is a basically a two-step process. So like a 52-step process. That is so complicated for a 15-year-old. You start getting messed up, but guess what? You start over. We kind of want to start with the inception of, of morphine. Like we want to start with the idea that if you are a trailblazer like Friedrich, that the moment you either drop rubber into a pan and make vulcanized rubber, or in Sir Turner's case, you invent a 52-step process to make a painkiller, then immediately you'll have a ticker tape parade. 
like like people will take your drug out to the street and they'll like it'll it'll be a movie like somebody will grab your hand and you know victory up in the air um what what do you imagine inventing something that would would be for you like have you ever had the sort of fantasy that you would invent something that would make you rich and famous yeah you always think of that thing that everyone in the house will have they'll name it after you that appliance or that something to make life more comfortable or more convenient for everybody right if if not a full-out invention like like reducing chemicals at least something that's like a better plastic housing around a light bulb or something I always respect those inventors. It's just pure profit. Like, I'll give you an example. Someone who invented uh, paying for parking. You know, the parking meter. Yeah. <laughs> just so smart. You patent that, and then generations are rich. You know? Right. Even, if, the, even if, the, if it's just a process you're patenting, then you just get paid for it. We had an episode uh, about O'Hare, the, yeah, the, um, the father of the guy who was... Um, that O'Hare Airport was named after. The legacy. Yeah, he got the patent on the the rabbit that runs around a Greyhound track, and he was rich for life, basically. Made millions. He actually yeah. stole it from the widow of the man that invented it. But. Exactly. <laughs> so you don't even have to be a, a Friedrichs or Turner. You can just you know steal his morphine process and, and take it and get rich. Um, so in preparation for this episode i wanted to find out can todd and i be trailblazers can everyone listening could we invent something and see it get adopted within our lifetime Uh, how likely are we to get that parade or to you know see the fruits of our labor come true and part of this started because todd's note about this on our doc said something about like america is the hotbed of invention I went at this part of the research to try to prove him wrong. I wanted to be like, no, every country has a chance to invent. We just, you know, uh, lionize American inventors. It's not true. America actually is the hotbed of invention, which is wild to me to think about. So we tried to dig up why. Um, First off, we'll start with how likely is your stuff to be invented or or how likely is your invention to be adopted? Um, so we're going to start really, really far back. Um, we're going all the way back to, um, Ethiopia 2.6 million years ago. That is a ways back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we go back 2.6 million years ago. We find, um, the first stone tools from Ethiopia quite a long time later. We get to the first handles on tools. If you're talking invention, the handle is the first big hot thing. Like that is, yeah, handle wheel, yeah, big ones. <laughs> right, right. The, the the handle is. Imagine the first person coming out with a handle on their tool, and you're like, "This is my accessory." Um, and those were made by Neanderthals. They were using uh, bitumen to basically glue handles onto their tools, and that was potentially seventy thousand years ago. Um, possibly as far back as a hundred thousand. Like if you really want to trust the older ones, according to an Italian dig site, they found like pitch bark, um, being used as tar, but that is still like a 2.5 million year gap without a handle. I was going to say, that's not very much progress. Yeah. You make a stone chisel and, and then 
two million years after that, roughly, give or take, you have a handle for that chisel. That does not sound right to me. That is such a slow adoption. Um, and if you if you want to get into funnier territory, so screws, as in like screws you would use to like you know screw in a light or or you know use a screw on like some some plank of wood or something. That was invented fifty years before the screwdriver. <laughs> At least. So why do you need, <laughs> So why would you need a screwdriver if you don't have any screws? I don't know. Were they all <laughs> being cheap bastard? Were they using quarters to screw in screws like I do? Like, I just I can only imagine. Uh, like you know, potentially, and it could be as long as three hundred years, depending on who you believe. Uh, Thoughtco says fifty. Wikipedia says three hundred. Uh, so I can only assume everybody was. Um, using emergency tools like pen tops and things like that for screws. Um, so basically what we're saying is that you can invent something that is groundbreaking and is a market improvement on what's available, and it could take a long time before it gets adopted. Um, moving forward in this, I have a Harvard Business Review article that we're going to link off to, and Okay, so the New York Times put up a chart at some point, um, and it was how many decades did it take for um, new technology to get into at least half of all households? And this chart goes back to the 1900s. It took like uh, 30 years for telephones to be adopted into everyone's house. It took a little bit more time for electricity to get adopted in. Radios were adopted in about twenty years. It looks like um, refrigerators, I, like well, dishwashers, took way too long. Yeah, dishwashers, dishwashers took, took a, twenty years, more than that, almost thirty years. Right, but the the closer you get to modern times, the quicker we adopted things. Um, color TV was adopted within um, a gen, like within a, a lifetime. It, it looked like it was about ten years. Um, microwaves were the same. Uh, you get up to VCRs. That's only about 10 years. You get up to like cell phones. That re- achieves almost full market penetration within you know 10 to 15 years. So what we're saying is that you can invent something fantastic and it may not achieve full market penetration it may not even be adopted in your lifetime, but you have a much better chance of it being adopted in your lifetime because you live in a time where we are, you know, willing to grab onto technology. Um, if you literally went back to caveman days and had the best thing in the world, people wouldn't adopt it. They wouldn't adopt it for millions of years. If you come to modern times, you put out an app or technology. Um, you might see it on shelves, you know, in a couple of years at least. So Friedrich, I imagine if if Friedrich Sertorner lived today, like he invented morphine, he would go to a pharmacy company. It doesn't matter who he is. Like he could be, I mean, like a fifteen year old stock boy working in the back of a pharmacy. He might get hosed as far as inventing something. Some some pharmacy company might be like, "Thanks, chump. You know, here's five hundred dollars yeah. for your invention." That's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking he's going to be taken advantage of by someone <clears throat> older and wiser with more resources. Right. 
and then they make money off it forever. But at least the technology would get out and be widely adopted quickly. So um, I guess this is one of those rare instances where uh, doing the research, I was immediately proven wrong in both things. Yes, your technology has a good chance of being adopted. Yes, America is the hotbed of invention. So there is one more reason I want to talk about of why we don't adopt things really early. Aside from us being like, one, we have to be aware that it's out. Like um, the early adopters, the reason why they're so crucial to a trailblazer success is people have to hear about your invention once you invent it. Like if nobody... Yeah, that's what I was thinking pre-internet. I mean, how do you advertise things through the newspaper? And there's a lot of political... (laughs) roadblocks there too (laughs) right well like sir turner you had to go to the authority of whatever you were doing you throw yourself on the mercy of whoever heads the thing that like he's in medicine so oxford university or you have to go france yeah there's a reason why um murray curry was working in france It, it it was the hub of medical achievement so like he had to appeal to you know basically french medicine these intellectuals who are 90 years old who don't like any new ideas. Right. Nowadays, if if your invention isn't widely adopted, sometimes the reason why is just simply because we will feel like idiots using it. Like, um, have you ever heard of uh, Dvorak keyboards? No. Okay. If you look at the top left of a keyboard, the first... Um, Six letters of the keyboard are QWERTY, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. And that's why uh, all standard keyboards are called QWERTY keyboards. Now, the QWERTY keyboard, the setup of it, was invented to make it slower for people to type, not faster. Um, It's the same QWERTY setup as what was on old typewriters. If you use an old ink typewriter and you type too fast the hammers the the keys will gum together the the two bits that strike the paper will hit each other if you're pressing them too fast and they'll stick so they invented qwerty so that people wouldn't be able to go faster and do that oh so it's not because it's the fastest it's not because the letters you use the most it's so they don't stick exactly that's interesting um there's a special type of keyboard Instead of spelling QWERTY at the top left, it actually spells out D-E-V-O-R-A-K, a Dvorak keyboard. It is people who train with them to prove that they are a good technology, a good invention. They can type approximately double the speed. So why don't we all switch to that? Because there is a lag in technology uh, called the competency lag where people won't adopt a new invention if they don't feel competent in it. If we would all across the world simultaneously suck at something for a while and feel bad, we will not adopt it. (laughs) I totally get that, right? (laughs) Isn't that terrible? I think it's the same reason why, like, some people will never drive a stick shift. Like, there are just little things like that. Just don't want to be embarrassed, even if it's temporary. All right. You had a, a note... Um, early in our, and we had a couple of versions of this podcast, the Trailblazer episode. You had a note about George S. Carver, a man who who sold double cross hybrid corn. Um, do you remember about that? I do. I remember that story. This was a man who 
during the tough times, and I think it was during the Depression, he went out and was trying to sell corn. He found a better way. He had he had made uh, a better a better corn in, in in a lab. They wanted to go sell these seeds, and it was going to be more profitable. But it was like five times more expensive than the original seed. And he was literally chased off people's farms, shotguns blaring. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about some really tough sales calls. Right. They were going to kill him for trying to charge him more for seed because they were already, the farmers were already starving. He's trying to sell something five times as much. And right. That's what everybody uses. It must have felt like a, like an insult. Like he's showing up and being like, let me sell you magic beans. You got some nerve, boy. Right. <laughs> now run. He's, they're like, I know corn when I see it. You're trying to charge me five times the amount. It, it, it it would literally be like if somebody showed up with a Dvorak keyboard at my office and was like, try this keyboard you've never seen before. Also, it's five times the price. I think these people, too, they're their own family. And the experts that they look up to are telling them that they're morons and that they're wasting their time. Right. And they're investing every every cent <laughs> they have. And every, you got to respect that, right? Maybe that's the true talent of a trailblazer in this first part is one, these trailblazers never doubted that early adopters would see the value of what they're doing and take it and run with it. But also they were willing to be humiliated. They were willing to fall into that, you know, adoption curve and, and hope that it actually picks up within their lifetime. So Friedrich started out the experiments on himself. And that's kind of trippy, too. You think of him up all night in this pharmacy and getting dope sick. Right. <laughs> getting sick all night. And then getting up and working all day. Licking but, early morphine tablets. <laughs> I mean, you know, have a rough night, right? And Talk about being hungover. So he started introducing it to um, stray dogs and cellar mice. And what he did was, because animals can't talk, he just observed their fatigue, their health, and then as they passed. And so then he dosed it correctly, dosed it up, did the math times 10, times 20, whatever, to do it towards humans. So he had the right dosage for humans. Okay. And that's when he roped his friends in. He took the compound himself at first, and he, he noticed that... Um, it made you happy, lightheaded. It kind of gave you a little high. And then he found like the second dose, a little bit higher, would make you fall into like a deep, deep slumber, like you were getting knocked out. And then the third dose, a little bit higher, was horrible, horrible headaches and nausea. And when he's doing these experiments, he's he's drawing in 17-year-olds. This has got to be the only time in history where like, a bunch of high schoolers hang out with an older kid who is like, I've got something for us to take and it actually pays off. This guy's like, I invented literal morphine. How that's well, he, they had, they went through the whole cycle first, second, third of all these ones. So they started out and, and they were a little high and happy. So that would hook them. Right. Right. And then they get tired and, and, and that's not so bad, but, but this, vomiting and uh, that'd be pretty terrible and so he gave them so much he gave enough to kill all of them 
Okay. If he wouldn't have given that vinegar, he gave him vinegar and forced them to to get it all out of their system. If he wouldn't have done it the time he did, he would have killed all his buddies. And this invention, he'd probably be in prison, right? Right. I think with 100 milligrams, that is definitely lethal. And again, this had never been invented, so nobody had a tolerance. Well, and that's the problem, too. Um, so he experimented mostly on himself. He put his life in danger the most, but what he was very, very unaware of was how extremely addictive this drug is. Oh, shit. Okay. So he's becoming a drug addict without even knowing it. I, when I was younger, I would have trouble going into work after, like, having whiskey the night before. So he must have been an absolute wreck at work. Like, how was his, what is pharmacy boss like? What have you been doing all night? And he's, he's post morphine overdose. <laughs> he's all geeked out. He looks like a grunge rocker. He looks like Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he did. So, but he kept continuing to study. He needed to get his pharmacy degree. And so he kept working on that. Um, he published two articles on morphine experiments and they were they were totally ignored he published a third one on his 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 experiments describing his findings in much greater depth so he slowly revealed through different papers what he found how far he'd come so he didn't give it all to him at once okay it it kind of sounds like like writer friends of mine where they they submit their first couple they're trash. They're not well written. They're, you know, they're full of mistakes. And then he just keeps sending in and, and refining it. Well, and this took three years just on writing of the papers on what he's found. So there's some patience and persistence here. Right. But in 1809, there are licensed pharmacists in the city of, I'm going to mispronounce this, Westphalia. Okay. It finally took his paper seriously. And it got what it needed with some much some much needed press, positive press. Okay. So a real professional person recognizes this kid and his morphine. I kind of want to talk about this pharmacist in Westphalia and the French um, medical community that had already sort of ignored Friedrich. Um, the The medical community at that time... I mean, of course, they were adopting things that they thought would work, but why Why aren't inventors taken seriously sooner? Like, in America, we take inventors very seriously. Like, unless it's your, your kid inventing something. If somebody says they are working on a patent, we take you dead seriously. Almost no other country has that history with them. And almost no other time in history was that a serious thing. How did we get that culture that creates that? Yeah, exactly. Why Why is America so big on invention? Um, so we're going to answer that question. But first, we need to answer the first part of that, which is, why is it so important for this pharmacist in Westphalia to adopt morphine? Or for us, um, why is it so important for us to find a trailblazer, find a early inventor and put money into their invention. Um, so I found this Forbes article that was really good. It compares the market share of a new invention 
and overlaps that with um, the new users for an invention. So um, if you could imagine this sort of like bell curve where you have, you know, at the at the 2.5% of people are the innovators who are looking at the inventors and being like, come on, man, what do you got? What's the new thing? You know, morphine, you know, what's this morphine thing? I want to know more. 13.5% um, of people are the early adopters. They're the ones who are like, um, you know, what's coming out? What's new? What's chic? It's a person who's going to have, you know, um, I, I, I know a guy from Intel who he has the newest technology no matter what it is. Yeah, I think of like the 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 explorer, right? The hiker, um, the astronaut type personality, right? Right. Or or like my friend who where he's like insufferable because you walk over to his house and he's like he's like, you know, talking to his walls and they turn the lights on for him and just unnecessary garbage. Like most, I hate to say it, <laughs> you early adopters who want to be trendy and show us new stuff, a lot of it is unnecessary. Annoying. Um, but sometimes it's morphine. Sometimes it's big. Um, then there's the early majority. This is where the bell curve gets big and goes high. The early majority is 34% of people where... They're the ones that have the cell phones when it's not super new, but it's it's new enough. It's not everybody has one. Um, on the downward slope of the bell curve is the late majority. This is 34% of people. They're the ones who adopt things late, after it's safe, after it's been tested, after morphine has been tried on, you know, a lot of people, so they don't feel like they're going to poison themselves. And then the laggards are 16%. <laughs> That's what you are. Hashtag what, yeah. laggard. <laughs> I'm a laggard. Uh, it's me. We, we got to work that word back into our language. Laggard. That's a great word. <laughs> the laggards are me and most 60-year-olds who refuse to get new technology. Like they, they're still using flip phones. Um, the reason it's so important to talk about this when we talk about invention and innovation if you're going to put money into something, according to this article, you want to put money into it right when it's hitting um, a tipping point, like the, the moment it's hitting its tipping point. Uh, speed matters, basically. Because well, if you invent too early, you're, you're not going to make it, and then vice versa, right? Right. It'll be so, saturated by the time you get to the laggard stage. Exactly. If you come to me... Uh, so, the, the way the scale looks, the market share... Uh, line that overlaps this bell curve the market share gets to the early majority and when it transitions from the early majority who is like we like this morphine stuff and the late majority is like oh, morphine never heard of it once you hit that sweet spot where almost everyone's heard of it and the late majority is starting to adopt it the market takes care of itself it, it growth becomes its own sort of system and you see this with invention after invention. There's this race for the patent. Usually someone did the early, and then someone improved it, and then three companies are racing to get to get it to, to this point. Right, exactly. Um, the reason why you'd want to invest in a new invention early, first off, there's reduced competition. This is something that I saw when Uber came out. Now, Uber was technically competing with taxis, but when they came out, Lyft wasn't around, at least not here in, in Portland. So they yep. came out. They were Coke without Pepsi there for a while. Exactly. And they were just crushing it. 
now according to this this is just averages but if you invest during the early adopter phase you get approximately 6.4 times more users and revenue so the the differences between these parts of the bell curve is huge that's why you want to be first yeah when people competition look at, is the is the, is the anti-profit right right so to summarize why you want to be the first person to get their hands on morphine or the first people to invest in something like the the invention of morphine or any trailblazer that you get behind. Companies that are accelerating through the growth curve basically end up locking out competition. They spend less money on um, advertising. They spend less money to make money. And making future successes are easier because they are basically riding a growth wave that happens naturally. Basically, the question you're asking yourself is, would you rather be a bush that sprouts up in a forest that's already full of growth? Like if you started up uh, a company that you know already has competition, or would you want to be the weed that sprouts up in a freshly plowed field like Friedrich was? I'm a very unpopular early adopter. If I adopt something early and tell everybody about it, Nobody listens. But Friedrich Surturner had somebody with a really big name listening to his, his research, listening to his morphine, you know, him telling everybody it's great and it's going to kill, you know, pain forever. Um, can we can we talk about that, man? It's a spoiler. It's a spoiler. <laughs> it's, I'm sorry. I'm kind excited. of the last person you would expect. You would expect some professor at a medical school or some very established pharmacist or doctor, right? A scientist, yeah. A healer of some sort. So his third paper, which finally got some traction, and the reason it did, a famous person spoke up for him, and it was the famous poet, Johann Wolfgang Van Gogh. (laughs) A poet was the one who went to bat for Friedrich and got him worldwide attention. Not just a, not just a poet, but like, it was it was during a a meeting of the German Mineralogical Society. That's like Jay Z <laughs> signing off on yeah. a new medicine for Pfizer. Well, that's that's like if Pfizer was having a lecture at like a scientific meeting, and then for some reason Jay Z was there, and then he stood up and he's like, "By the way, this new inventor who made this obscure medicine, let's give him let's give him a shot." I think it's hella dope. It's so great. So, Johann von Goethe. Oh, by the way, if if you're unfamiliar with the name, he wrote Faust, um, the the you know the poem and later play about making a deal with the devil. The the term Faustian bargain uh, comes from von Goethe, and he and he stood up for Friedrich. That's so wild. That is an eleventh hour twist. So when you have celebrities endorsing you, then the the tide turns, and it did for him. Then he started getting, um, from the University of Jena in Germany, awards. He got honorary doctor degrees. I know how you feel about those, right? Uh, We need them. I'm waiting for ours. (laughs) You know, similar honors, recognition as a doctor for Berlin. So he's getting getting the attention. He got them from Berlin, St. Petersburg, Paris, Lisbon. And he's also, it's been a while. Like, he's a middle-aged man at this point, basically. He's a little bit, he's a middle-aged man who's been, guess what, Joe? 
using his drug for a number of years now. I kind of forgot about that. Yeah, me too. He's in his middle ages, and he, he looks like he's a, at a morphine 60. So, <laughs> Okay, so he got his recognition, so we're all good, right? All's not well. So it's 1820. Now, he got all of his doctorate, his license was granted to him by the French. But the Hanover government comes moves back in. And they're not impressed by him at all. They won't recognize any of his contributions. So he's been immediately, if there was a button, a delete button on his career, was pushing. They think he has a bad reputation. This is funny to me. They think he writes like an amateur. (laughs) So his poor writing, forget about he's got this life-saving, pain-killing drug. Oh, my God. The, The fact that there's too many typos in his, because he's not an educated man. It keeps coming back to the writing. Like, that's why he was originally ignored at the start of the story is he submitted his papers and they were like, no, this looks like an amateur. And this is why I hang out with you all the time. Because <laughs> you make me sound a lot smarter than I am. Or I would have been canceled a long time ago. <laughs> so he went from being on the world stage, famous, getting honorary doctorates, fame. And now he's running. Now he's back to running a pill and placebo shop. Wow. Demoted. So, okay, not just the fame. He's not even technically an apothecary anymore, or not a pharmacist anymore. So, yeah, he loses license, everything. He just stripped it all. I kind of want to get to the soul of invention now because this. Would you retire if that happened to you? Like, would you just be like, screw this, screw inventing things, I'm done? Oh, you know me. Yeah, I would have quit a long time ago. I would have yeah. quit when he was about 21. <laughs> I kind of, I'm starting to think that Friedrich literally won't stop tinkering and making breakout discoveries. And I want to know, is that a miserable life? Like, does does that kind of invention brilliance make you happy? Or is it mental health issues? I'm, yeah, because he's been, he's been told no by all the experts for all these years and... Right. We we had um They won't even flatter him by stealing it from him either. Right. We had an episode some time ago uh about intelligence and whether you could be if being a genius made you happier or more successful. We found out it really doesn't. Like Does, it doesn't make you much more money. You're no. 10 times smartest person at work, you probably make about the same money as everybody else. Yeah, and intelligence altered your um earning potential by like two percent or something um brilliance is good in tech uh because it you know especially if you have a genius for math or language um brilliance basically gives you ideas but if you're not good at marketing your own ideas you basically end up spending the rest of your life fighting to get folks to adopt your screwdriver or you're like tesla and edison where you 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 do a tesla you invent something cool and then a good marketing person like Edison takes it and sells it. Um, so I, I guess our big question is, if you're not good at marketing, if if you're Friedrich, like if you are great at inventing but crappy at marketing yourself, at promoting yourself, how much do you make? Like how much money does an inventor, a literal trailblazing inventor make? Um, so I went straight to ZipRecruiter. <laughs> because I'm predictable and I found out I I just 
Did you know, did inventor is an actual job title that still exists? <laughs> oh, really? So there's a salary.com. <laughs> I thought I was going to type inventor into ZipRecruiter and it was going to like call me a child. Like it was going to be like, you're, you are clearly a kindergartner. Go home. <laughs> um, no, but I, I, I typed into ZipRecruiter inventor and found out that they make about 60000 a year, <laughs> which is not what I was hoping for. Um. Inventors can make up to 90, uh, 98000 a year. That was the high end. Um, but there were so many people who fell below the middle mark. Most of them seemed to be making about $29 an hour. Um, only about 2% had cracked 100000 a year. They, they skewed the graph. It seems like a job with a, with a lot of deadlines and a lot of disappointment. I, uh, I, happened to, I met some of these guys. So, like, um, I used to work at a semiconductors plant, and in the engineer's bay, uh, I knew guys who had patents in different chipsets and, like, types of chips. That's interesting. What was their personality type? All over the board. Um, Most of them were very focused on their work, and they were, like, sort of, like, jovial people. I remember just everybody was super friendly, and they... I think of them being, like, the car salesman type... Salesy, salesy, real estatey, or I see him as the opposite, like that scientist that you know stay up all night and don't very talk to up all night scientist. Um, one of the guys would come in way too early. He would kill a couple of my hours a day. Like he would come in and just talk about James Bond movies, and like he would do that for two hours, like not working, like showing up early to the job site. No one else is there, and he would just talk about James Bond before he got into work. Just attack your ears. Yeah. Um, Assault your ears. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they they made about this amount. Like they weren't multimillionaires. They weren't driving in their Bentleys. Um, They were honest, regular folk who happened to hold patents and inventions. I think that's attraction to the, the Americans. We do that one thing, that one time. We work for that one year really hard, and then we're on our yachts and driving our Bentleys forever. Right. And you think that just doesn't resonate with other countries? They're like, it's just too good to be true. <laughs> <laughs> They're just too smart for that. <laughs> Actually, um, from what I can tell, it's kind of how patent laws work in America, where it doesn't everywhere else. Um, one day, we will have an episode all about patent laws. But basically, we have our laws set up to protect inventors and to make sure they profit at least a little bit off it. So that encourages more inventors. It totally does. Yeah. Um, We have a system set up to where you can get that payday. It's not as much as I thought it would be. Talking about this, realizing that um, you can be an inventor your whole life and you generally just make a decent salary in the end. That deflated me a little bit, but at least that is available. At least if you invent something um, or invent things consistently that will be useful to a small sect of industry, you'll make enough to survive. Lots of them are improvements on things and this and that. Exactly. Yeah. They're not inventing uh, the telephone outright. They're not inventing a handle. They're, they're inventing, you know, uh, a one millionth iteration on a chip that they've been working on for their whole life. But at least it's a livable wage and they're doing something that they're passionate about. And they're doing something that no one else has ever done. Exactly. 
I do want to throw just a tiny bit of cold water on our fist bumping about America being built for invention and innovation. Um, we're hemorrhaging trailblazers and inventors. Um, as a country, our innovation has been decreasing. Um, we used to have uh, what was called a measure of fundamental productivity growth. And we're going to have the link to the MIT Sloan article that I got this from. But um, innovation used to fuel the economy in America. But since the 1970s, innovation has gone from uh, part of our annual increase of 1.9% to 0.7. So it's half what it used to be. Um, and that is due to something they called the lost Einstein effect. Have you ever heard of this? No, what is that? I'll put it this way. Kids born in the richest 1% of society are 10 times more likely to be inventors than those born in the bottom 50%. Well, I should have known this. Social class is here is rearing its ugly head again. Right, exactly. So Unlimited all of, resources, sleep. Yeah, not having to work for every scrap. Mm-hmm. Um, if Friedrich Sir-Turner was too busy sweeping floors and restocking shelves like not just in a pharmacy but if he was being forced into i mean let's face it if friedrich Turner was alive today he'd be doing doordash or uber he'd be working uh at taco bell uh, he <laughs> we would not allow him to work in the back of a pharmacy um and that's kind of bearing out um this big gap and they've they've got some pretty stern evidence to show that the U.S. could quadruple its innovation number if women, minorities, and children from low-income families were encouraged or given the tools to be inventors at the same rate as men from high-income families. So when they say it's a, the effect is called lost Einsteins, it's pretty much the saddest effect I've ever seen from you know, economic inequality. That's terrible. And all those natural resources that will never be discovered because yep. people will be delivering DoorDash and doing very least important things just to scrape by. Um, but that, for me at least, brings me full circle because the story started with a bunch of stodgy old rich white gentlemen from a high society overseeing the scientific community and frowning on Friedrich's original invention of morphine, even though it was so mind-blowing and important. Um, but he was poor and uneducated, so fuck him. Uh, yeah, where's the pushback on that? All the right. That, all the people that suffered, and you were supposed to be this medical expert, and, and you just thought it, the paper wasn't written well enough, and and you didn't put your you didn't put your team on help improve the product and getting them to the finish line faster. Right. So this tells me Friedrich was. I mean, Friedrich Sauterner, the man that invented morphine and saved millions of lives, he was literally supposed to be one of these lost Einsteins, and just he got lucky. Somebody actually listened to him, which is crazy to me. Friedrich was having tough times, and this is towards the end of his life, and and he was desperate, and he was frustrated. He had to figure out a way to get back in good with the Germans. So he had his wife... God bless her, run the pharmacy while he just did experiments 24 hours a day. Trying to impress the very government that took away his accolades and his doctorate. And he started working on a few things. He guessed correctly, but he couldn't prove this. 
but that you could make ether from alcohol and sulfuric acid. Okay, that's a huge thing. He also speculated about atmospheric heat and cold heat. So he had he he was like you said he was an Einstein. He was ahead of his time. He was definitely. He's just taking wild shots at this point. That that's not anything to do with alkali. Um, the side journals hated all of his writings, even though years later all of his stuff, most of his stuff was was proved to be true. Okay. He had a very blue collar, common sense approach. Um, his on the job education probably should have had a lot more value. If he was an academic Joe, he would have gotten so much more respect. And imagine if he had more financial support. He could he could have cured all kinds of stuff. Yeah, imagine if so. Like what he's limited to is speculating about these sciences. What if he had had you know the time and ability and and money to prove everything to actually sit and do the proof, which is I think why they're mad at him. Why do you think all these um, people hated him and all these media journalists didn't like him? You think it was a social class thing? I really do. Um, I think he was looked at as what he was, which was a poor back-of-the-shop experimenter who didn't write well and didn't present like a... I mean, okay, so back in these days, science was reserved for gentlemen. And this I'm not making this up. There's a quote um, about the guy that invented hand-washing before surgery, and it saved everybody. It saved so many lives. But he went mad and was committed to a nut house because he was like, there's a thing called germs and it's killing people because you're not washing your hands. And being a scientist was such a gentlemanly thing. Um, one doctor in, in writing uh, said, quote, doctors are gentlemen and a gentleman's hands are clean. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's literally I'm better than you. It is literally I'm better than you. I was born clean and nothing I can do. And that seems like what we're talking about here, just a very common sense thing that instinctively we should know. Right. And but he he was mocked and ridiculed and But only a gentleman can be a, a scientist or a doctor, because clearly this man does not have the money to to buy an education, and because he can't, then he he doesn't deserve attention. This reminded me, Joe, of Frederick was trying to please the German government like a a kid would be trying to get the respect or love of their parent. Okay. And he finally, to do it, he abandoned chemistry and drugs altogether. No more pharmacies. And he started working on bullets and gunpowder science for the Hanover government. Oh, God. Okay. And it worked. His, they didn't end up using a lot of his inventions, but they, they, they rewarded him as a patriot. A patriot for research on firearms and ammunition. So he got recognition, which is something that he really always wanted. Uh, that is devastating in two ways. One is you take a man of medicine, tell him his ideas are garbage because he's not a gentleman, and then you have him start making... Well, anything not medicine would be a travesty. Like, you know, here's here's gunpowder and metal. Work on that. And, and then he invents a different type of bullet. That is horrible. His later years were 
just bitter bitterness and pain. He became a total, total recluse, hypochondriac. He really lost his way. He lost his sense of worth. Because he was so depressed, he started using more morphine. And the side effects got worse and worse. So he became a full-on drug addict. Wow. He died in Hamlin on February 20th, 1841. The tragedy in this, Joe, is that the full potential of his discovery was, wasn't very far away. The invention of intravenous medicine was just a few years later. So he died a broke drug addict right away from his, uh, his windfall. As humans, we haven't always adopted the best technology for us. With time, we've grown quicker. It took us decades for us to adopt phones into our houses and only a few years for the cell. Compared to early man, those of us in the internet age aren't just early adopters, we're lightning adopters. The online market is flooded every day with copycat inventions, poor iterations of things that already exist and competitors nobody asked for. So if you have aspirations to be a technology trailblazer, bear in mind the challenges ahead. But if you manage to break the mold in a useful way, you will be rewarded. In 1831, the French Academy of Sciences awarded Frederick Sturtner the Montillon Prize, an award that recognizes Friedrich as a benefactor for humanity. The same prize was awarded to Jules Verne and Louis Pasteur. It also came with a purse of 2,000 francs and a taste of the professional recognition Friedrich deserves so badly. He was able to enjoy the fruits of his invention for nine years. Nine years, knowing his work with morphine had been recognized and was saving lives. Before he died at age 57, addicted to morphine, still suffering the side effects of the very drug he discovered. Just a few years after Friedrich's death, morphine would be combined with a new invention, the hypodermic needle. And a few years after that, America's bloodiest war would begin. Sir Turner, the original Mr. Sandman would take away the pain of millions of surgery patients and Civil War victims. You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredyou.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We also appreciate feedback, and we love spirited debates. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything.